The NFU's petition to have food production standards enshrined in the Agriculture Bill is gathering pace. There is a huge strength of feeling here. This isn't just about farmers. Stuart Roberts, Deputy President of the NFU, explains where the petition is at and what's behind it. And we'll hear all about the upcoming 24 hours in farming. We set it up because we really felt that uh, the agriculture and the role it played in, in society and in the country as a whole wasn't really being recognised. From Ben Brick, editor of the Farmer's Guardian. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. And in addition to that, PJP Potatoes' Colin Jackson joins us with an update on the crop. We'll have a look at the markets with Kit Dickinson from Openfield and Sean Sparling has some timely agronomy advice. I'm Steve Orchard. Hello. Welcome to this week's farming programme. Let's start with a look at the week's headlines, starting with a reminder for farmers and landowners that the deadline for BPS 2020 claims is only a day away. You need to get your claim in, if you haven't already, through the Rural Payments Service by midnight, Monday the 15th of June. Applications for the countryside stewardship mid-tier continue until the 31st of July. Lincolnshire Police dealt with 1,048 hair-coursing incidents between September and March. And although this seems a huge number, it's actually the second lowest on record. Chief Inspector Phil Vickers, who leads rural crime for the force, said offenders are still trespassing, causing damage and intimidating local people. The approach under Operation Galileo last season was to focus on prevention, making use of tactics that really impact on offenders. Technology, including the use of drones, has had a great impact, as well as obtaining court orders for the seizure of dogs, which are then forfeited. The force asked us for vigilance and to contact them with any information that may help. International farm workers coming to the UK to provide much-needed labour this season do not need to self-isolate for 14 days on arrival, the government's announced. Migrant agricultural workers are exempt from the quarantine rules, but they will need to prove at a UK border control that they are a seasonal agricultural worker with contact details and the address of the farm where they will live and work, and they'll only be allowed to leave the farm in exceptional circumstances. Now, every day, over four million farmers pride themselves on keeping the nation fed. And in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, we're relying on British farmers to dig deep and serve the nation. Now there's something that the British public can do to help. Farmers Guardian and Morrisons have joined together once again in August for 24 hours in farming. Ben Briggs, editor of the Farmers Guardian, is with us. Morning, Ben. Good morning. So 24 hours in farming. Tell tell us what it is, first of all. It's an initiative that Farmers Guardian started um, probably four or five years ago now. Uh, And 24 hours in farming is is really just a a social media celebration of the industry. So using the hashtag Farm24, we we set it up at the time because we really felt that uh, the agriculture and the role it played in, in society and in the country as a whole wasn't really being recognised. So we wanted to provide farmers with a platform online to kind of share their stories. So it might be the extraordinary or it might be the seemingly banal, such as milking or harvest time or whatever it might be. And we just wanted, um, we just wanted farmers really to share their story. And the thing is, 
that we started it with was reasonably low expectations. And, and then over the last few years, as, as the kind of awareness of social media within the industry and, and the wider country has grown, the initiative has just popped. We had 120 million interactions with our tweets last year, uh, and it's just really gone from strength to strength. We've got Morrison's, the supermarket, backing us now and sponsoring it as our main partner and it's uh, it's something that's just really been embraced by the industry and really been taken forward. Uh, we live in a, a rural community and I think most of the people who live near a farm will probably understand what goes on but there's an awful lot of people that <laughs> the assumption is uh, this food arrives in the supermarket all nicely cling film wrapped and I just go home and cook it with very little understanding of where it's come from, how it's got there, what the journey is and all the issues that farmers have to to go through to get it to that stage. Is this aim, you talk about championing UK agriculture, is this the aim to educate the public generally? It is really, and it's to, it's to try and bridge that urban and rural divide, which I think has been so pervasive for a number of years, really. Um, I think before the coronavirus pandemic, there wasn't really a wider acknowledgement uh, within wider society about the role that agriculture played. Now, you know, what did we? What was the first thing that we saw uh, at the start of lockdown? Well, it was massive supermarket queues. It was uh, it was closures of some of those shops, and it was the pressure that that put on our supply chain. So actually, at the moment, the awareness of farming has never been higher. But that also gives us a huge opportunity to show what really goes into into this fantastic industry. So it's about the people, it's about the characters, it's about the hard work. As you say, I mean, I, I grew up, um, my parents uh, have a milk roundup here in Blackburn and you would deliver milk and still a lot of people on the on the estates where you would deliver milk in, in the towns would think that would, would think that milk comes from Tesco or it comes from a supermarket shelf or it comes from wherever. And I think it's trying to disabuse people of those notions. It's trying to show them the reality that goes into food production and, and the fantastic people behind it as well. Because, you know, sometimes there's a stereotype around farmers. People don't really understand the people behind it. But it's a, it's a diverse industry. It's an innovative industry. And we, we really want to showcase every aspect of it. And he's saying that consumers are asked to pledge their support. How, how can they do that? We just want the, the public to come on and, and, and pledge their support for farmers. So just come on, use the hashtag, come on to social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, and just really show your support for, for farmers. It might just be a kind comment. It might just be a thank you. You know, we, we don't want that kind of recognition as an industry all the time because this is a it's a career choice. People have decided uh, to be in agriculture. But if you just want to pledge your support, if you want to show that you want to buy British, and I think that's the, that's the best support farming and British farming can actually get is to choose something with a red tractor logo on, something that has been produced in this country and which supports British farmers. And, and that is a really, really topical issue at the moment, as people might have seen the headlines about um, potential trade deals with America and substandard imports. We have the best welfare standards of any farming system in the world. And I think if, if British consumers buy British and they buy British farms, then it gives the industry a really vibrant future. And what's Morrison's involvement in all this? They're just a big supporter of some of our wider kind of outreach initiatives. Uh, and Morrison's, obviously, it, it, uh, it's a big backer of British farming. All its meat uh, is 100% British. It's one of the only ones with vertically integrated supply chains and, 
and farmers that it that it buys from. So uh, it, it's a it's a fantastic organisation, and, and they're just so synergies really, and, and it gives us that connection to the consumer. It allows us to take the message on that day into those supermarkets about what British farmers are doing, as you said before, to get that food from the field to the plate. And Farmers Guardian obviously has a big part to play in all this. Yeah, well, Farmers Guardian, we're in our, we're in our 176th year now. I mean, our, our founder was actually a guy called Joseph Lizzie, who was also the founder of the uh, teetotal uh, temperance movement. So I don't think he could have ever envisaged that uh, the, uh, the publication he founded all those years ago would be leading something like this. But, you know, Farmers Guardian is a driving force, obviously, a weekly uh, publication. With uh, But what we have now is a huge um, uh, internet and social media presence. And we've really kind of capitalised on, on that in the past few years. And it just gives people a platform to come on and on and share their um, share their thoughts on the day with the hashtag Farm24. So I just encourage people really to look out for the, the Farmers Guardian on Twitter, on Instagram and on Facebook. We have big followings, but we, we want more. Uh, and I think it's just about spreading that message around about how great an industry British farming is. And just to remind us again of the date, the time and the website, Ben. Well, the date for 24 hours in farming is it starts at 5am on Thursday, August the 6th, and it runs for 24 hours into the Friday. So if you Google 24 hours in farming, there's plenty on there that you can go at. Ben Briggs, editor of The Farmer's Guardian. Many thanks for joining us on The Farming Programme. No problem at all. To agronomy now. Good morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Steve. Pretty much a perfect week of weather as far as I'm concerned. A couple of dry days at the beginning to let us get a few of those spraying jobs out of the way on the cereals and the peas and the beans and the potatoes and the sugar beet. Bit of beet hoeing even carried out Monday and Tuesday. Then the rain came Tuesday night into Wednesday. Jobs are good and away we go. And I think the weather over the course of the last 10 days has done more good to the crops in UK agriculture's field than all of the agronomists in the UK have done put together in the last six weeks. We've been laying down residual pre- emergence herbicides, expensive herbicides to try and curtail and control weeds as they come through the ground on potatoes, sugar beet, peas, beans, linseed, games crops even. And now we've had some rain, they're finally being reactivated and you can see the effect they're starting to have already on grass and broadleaf weeds alike, which is what we put them there for in the first place. So all of those prayers have been answered and about time. I'm eternally grateful for the drop of rain we've had. I think it's come in the nick of time for a lot of crops. It may have come too late for some of the crops and the patches of crops within sand over gravel fields because I think some of mine were packing up three weeks ago and it won't have come early enough for those. And I think you have to make some very 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 serious and sensible decisions on whether these crops in those situations are going to be worth persevering with or whether they are simply a cover crop and should be treated as such if you're not going to get your money back then just don't waste your money throwing them at them So we've seen sugar beet herbicides rallying and weeds that were getting a bit too big for the boots starting to collapse backwards. And it's almost like the Serengeti Plains, um, the effect that we've seen this week. Uh, In seven days, I've seen sugar beet crops double in size and wonderful to see. I was beginning to wonder whether it was ever going to happen this year. Remember also in sugar beet, your threshold once the crop gets to 12 leaves for the Mises persicae, the virus vectors drops back from one nymph, one wingless nymph per four plants back to one nymph, wingless nymph per plant. Uh, The crop has a more inbuilt resistance strategy it can engage then uh, once they get to that point. But don't let your guard down. If you're seeing that threshold, then you do need to be out there and treating these crops. 
But for the first time this season, I'm a lot more bullish about sugar beet than I was. Obviously, the wet conditions are causing one or two issues. And winter wheat, as it pushes into ear and starts to flower, if you get wet weather that coincides with that first 36 hours of flowering, you need to be in there with either prothiaconazole, tebuconazole or metconazole to try and control that fusarium. I say try and control it. The best you will ever achieve, even in the perfect year with the perfect timing and the perfect rate, is about 50% of fusarium. Ear blight. So if it's a bad year, I'm afraid we're all going to see fusarium ear blight. And there's not many varieties on the list which have a rating of higher than five. So it could be a problem. However, if you are later than that 36 hour period, if that window has been missed and you're five or six days after it, which the weather is going to cause us all to find ourselves in that position this year, then all you are going to do is top up the foliar disease control. You will have no effect whatsoever on fusarium because once it's in, it is in. However, when I say all you're going to do. It was vitally important last year, that top-up of foliar disease control, because we witnessed the yellow rust and the septoria marching in once the rains subsided through the middle of June. So speak to your advisor about it, work out what the best course of action is, prioritise fields which have been sprayed for longer than others, and prioritise the quality wheats which are pushing into flower as that wet weather hits. Now, the other thing I've seen in my winter wheat this week, for the first time in over two decades, and I don't think it's any coincidence that this is our first year without neonicotinoid seed treatments on winter wheat, is threshold levels of grain aphid on the ear in my milling wheat. The threshold, for those of us who have forgotten about it, is 50% of ears have a colony of aphids up until flowering, that's one in two, and then once you get into flowering and beyond and up to cheesy right, that threshold increases to 66% of ears showing um, aphid levels. That's two plants in every three, two ears in every three. So be on top of that. You'll find it more in areas of fields and headlands of fields and patches of fields than you will fields. But having said that, on Wednesday, I was finding whole fields that needed treatment. Now, if you're going to put a pyrethroid on, time it if you can with that um, T3 fungicide but keep your fingers crossed and to be quite honest I think keeping your fingers crossed will probably do as much good as the pyrethroid if not more good. It's very odd that this season has seemed to coincide and mirror what happened last year. Five inches of rain from the 1st of January to the 1st of June last year. Pretty similar picture, even less rain from March onwards than we saw last year. Less than 30 mil of rain in that period for me this year. Um, but then the rain started at cereals. So I was just interested to see if this year's cereals, the virtual cereals, got any virtual rain. And according to a uh, quite a reliable source, they had virtually none. So... The wet weather is going to be a potential issue for diseases in all sorts of crops. You need to be on top of that with protectant fungicides in peas and beans and potatoes. And potatoes in particular, this is blight weather. Every day seems to be a Hutton period which is two consecutive 24-hour periods where the temperature doesn't fall below 10 degrees at any point and the relative humidity is 90% or more for six hours in each one of those 24-hour periods. A Smith period is exactly the same, but the relative humidity has to be 90% or more for 10 hours in each one of those periods. Once you start your blight program, maintain it in these conditions, use the best products for the job, keep that program up and sort of it's not a bad idea at the moment to keep a seven-day interval, I think, and maintain the levels of trade elements as well keep your eyes peeled for misers persicae because they're out there in the potatoes as well so it's all happening out here a bit of rain has made all the difference to all the crops let's see what the next seven days bring sean sparling many thanks as ever sean's back here same time next week on the farming program in a moment we'll get an update on the situation in the potato fields and talk about the nfu's agriculture bill petition and of course take a look at the markets 
The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Every month on The Farming Programme, we take a look at the state of the crop of sugar and this week, potatoes. Colin Jackson from PJP Potatoes joins us once again. Morning, Colin. Morning, Steve. How's things with you? Has the wet weather helped? Um, ironically, could do with a bit more wet weather, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> crazy, isn't it? Uh, what a year so far. Um, we've really seen varying sort of rainfall from one or two people getting up towards you know half an inch or so, um, and other people really still down at only six or seven mil. Uh, and the six or seven mil hasn't done a great deal, and even the half an inch really hasn't done enough um to 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 do much apart from help where people are irrigating it's taken a little bit of pressure off that um and and also obviously with the cold weather you know we're not getting so much transpiration either at the moment so so you're still needing to irrigate at the moment yes yeah and that's pretty much certainly across the eastern side of the country and uh, the southeast um all the southeastern corner are still irrigating pretty well as hard as they can so where are we at with the crop we're finding the you know the first rocket we're getting through that now there is still some rocket left available which is the you know the very first uh, variety that's available and that's about done now moving into the Maris bards um early chipping varieties are knocking on the door but they're not really quite there yet one or two samples that have been grown under polythene or under fleece um are nearly there ready um but uh, having said that there's still plenty of old season chipping potatoes around anyway so not really the market isn't really requiring it just at the moment anyway the new season and quality wise the old the old season stuff how's that looking well, it's holding up all right. I mean, obviously, at the moment, you know, th- that has been out of the ground for sort of eight or nine months now, a lot of that. Um, so it's uh, it's starting to uh, to show a bit of softness. Um, but crop generally in store has been ho- OK. Um, so, yeah, it's not really a problem with that. It's just literally trying to get the old season crop sold um, and trying to not affect too much the new season crop. And when are we looking for a new season crop to be available, Colin? Well, they always used to say that Lincolnshire Show Week, which of course isn't happening this year, um, <laughs> that, that several potatoes will come on the market around that time. Now, chippers obviously need to be a little bit bigger than that. So, But generally speaking, sort of early July, um, there should be some, some chipping-sized uh, potatoes around. Um, and uh, so that's when we're normally we'll look to change over you know over that sort of month of july between the uh, old season and the new season and do you think the the ridiculous variety of weather we've had over recent months is going to have an adverse impact on uh, yields this year yes i think it will have a certain amount um we are seeing certainly also you know those late frosts that we got have had an effect um we're finding tuber numbers varying greatly but you know in fields where one or two plants have literally only got one tuber to it and other plants have got uh, multiple tubers so we're seeing a big variation in sizes um and yes, you know, we will find that uh, yields are being affected, um, which can only really be a good thing. Right. So pr- will that affect prices as well, ultimately? Yeah, well, that, that's why I say it can only be a good thing, because <laughs> uh, with the carryover of the old crop, if we were to get a bumper yield this year as well, then we're only heading in one direction. So frankly, we need a, a bit of a reduction in this year's yield um, to be able to compensate for the carryover of the old crop and maintain some relatively normal prices. 
So I'm guessing like, like most other uh, sectors of agriculture, you've been adversely affected in terms of getting rid of the old crop by coronavirus, the lack of food service and restaurants, etc., etc. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, we've been affected. The, the frozen food market has obviously been affected dramatically because that does go into the restaurant trade and food service. Um, the fresh sector um, has been affected. Obviously, the, the chip shops, a lot of those did close down. Now, several of them have reopened now, um, but they're certainly not back up to the levels that we were seeing before the lockdown, um, the amount of volume that's being moved. So, yes, certainly having an effect. Um, on the flip side, Certainly volumes that went through the fresh market um, and supermarkets did go up and we saw a period of of a couple of months of very high movement through the, the fresh sector. But that has dropped down to more normal levels now as well. Colin Jackson from PJP Potatoes, thanks for the update. We'll talk again next month. Cheers. Okay. yeah, good to speak to you. Let's get an update now on the state of play with the Agriculture Bill and the NFU's petition. Stuart Roberts, Deputy President of the NFU, thank you for joining us on the Farming Programme this morning. Um, We've talked about the need for preservation of standards for food produced outside the UK numerous times. Obviously, the disappointing voting down of the uh, amendment to the Ag Bill that probably would have achieved this. Where are we now, Stuart? So, um, in in, uh, in in very sort of uh, strict uh, sort of process points, uh, the bill uh, enters the House of Lords, uh, where there will be further opportunities to amend the bill. We will certainly be looking for the Lords uh, to really show some uh, some leadership around standards, uh, and then it will go back into the Commons. Uh, later in the year, um, and that's really, if you like, when the real test is. Uh, so once it comes out of the Lords, back into the Commons, uh, and we'll see if, if politicians are are really going to stand by uh, the manifesto commitment to uphold uh, the standards that farmers in the UK hold so proudly. I'm kind of assuming a negative outcome to this from the Lords, because you've put together a, a, a petition which has gathered some incredible numbers of signatories. But that seems like you've, you've put together this petition on the assumption that the bill's going to come back from the Lords unamended and therefore we need to keep, keep pressing. No, actually, I, I think, I hope anyway, possibly the opposite, Steve, that um, I, I hope the Lords will, uh, will make uh, some uh, intelligent amendments Certainly one of the big ones that I think I've spoken on the programme out of four is the establishment of the Trade and Standards Commission. It would be great if the Lords made that amendment. The real test uh, is actually when it comes back to the Commons. So, look, we hope it comes back to the Commons uh, in its amended form, a form that reflects uh, the views of of this morning, uh, 858,875 people uh, who have signed our petition. We are we are delighted with the numbers. We're, we're not far off a million uh, signatories on that petition. And uh, it just shows the, uh, the strength of feeling, not only amongst the farming community, but amongst the wider public for uh, the importance of maintaining our standards. Now, we've seen published on social media, Twitter, etc., a letter published by the Secretary of State for International Trade List Trust, DEFRA Secretary George Eustace, talking about uh, they want a ban on hormones, uh, no chlorinated chicken and so on. Is that not enough, that letter? No, it's not, because what it, it, it misses a point 
Uh, and the point is about the production standards that sit behind um, why they chlorinate chicken or why they uh, add growth hormones to beef. So for me, this is about looking at our environmental standards, our animal welfare standards, as well as our food safety standards. Um, so no, it doesn't go far enough. We we really need to see the establishment of the uh, the long called for Trade and Standards Commission, who can really uh, act to advise, to, uh, to, to recommend uh, on what is it we need when it comes to trade and standards to meet uh, the government's manifesto commitment uh, to not compromise uh, our environmental, our animal welfare or our food safety standards. Is this petition going to work? I was, I was chatting with somebody the other day and they, they kind of likened it a little bit to a football match. Referee gives a contentious decision. He's surrounded by players. He never changes his mind as a result of this. You know, he waves them all away, gives a few yellow cards out. But he, all this surrounding of the ref never changes his mind. Is, is the petition going to be a similar kind of thing that we could send a million plus signatures and they go, yeah, fine, because they haven't taken much notice of what we said so far. Is it going to actually make a difference? I, I think it will, uh, but a petition in its own right won't. Um, what the petition does, I think, is it shows to government, it shows to politicians of, of all parties um, that actually there is a huge strength of feeling here. This isn't just about farmers. This is about, you know, we, we've had uh, all sorts of members of society sign this petition who hold our standards dear. And I think, look, it just shows to uh, those who will be round the negotiating table, those who set our legislation, that actually the British public are not prepared to sacrifice our standards for the sake of, of, of a free trade deal. And I think uh, if they need any reminder, you know, nearly a million signatures, hopefully by the time uh, this airs at the weekend, Steve, there will be a million signatures there. Um, and actually in anyone's mind, that is a real show of strength on an issue and an issue that, that politicians simply can't just ignore. Where uh, can people go to actually sign this petition? Uh, so, uh, as you touched on, it is it is all over social media at the moment. But uh, for anyone who needs the direct link, if you go to nfuonline.com, uh, and the petition is there front and centre on the front page, um, and anyone who's not signed it, anyone who values our standards, values our farmers, uh, and values animal welfare or the environment, Please, please sign it. Stuart Roberts, Deputy President of the NFU, Everything Crossed. Thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme again. Always a pleasure. Let's take a look at the markets now with Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. Well, for a change, we'll start with barley this week. Barley is the market that is struggling the most. As UK farmers, despite the lower yields that many of us will achieve, we will still likely end up with an exportable surplus this year. So, barley particularly will be discounted at harvest in order to find export markets. On a brighter note, the feed mills are attempting to build a higher percentage of barley into the ration. On a normal year, there would be 9-10% to of the barley in the ration. But this year coming, the plan is to increase this to 15-20%. to This can only happen in poultry meal and not for pigs, as barley is not nutritionally beneficial enough. 
So back to wheat, there has been a large focus on stocks recently. How much demand has the world currently got and the stock figures on maize for both this year and the prediction for next year will be the key things to watch. We are fast moving into a season where every consumer will be looking at how cheap maize could replace very expensive wheat. Firstly, that the US weekly ethanol usage numbers show signs of recovery, which is a good sign. But to counteract that, recent rains in Europe, Eastern Europe and the Black Sea particularly look to be very beneficial to their maize crop. This is not so good if you want a higher wheat value as the world will be producing even more cheap maize. Looking at currency, the pound continued in its unpredictable run this week by weakening versus the euro and the dollar. Every penny currency moves means circa £1.50 rise or fall on cereals and double that on oilseed rape. Absolutely nothing else needs to happen on values and the currency calculation can increase, decrease our ex-farm prices accordingly. It's been tricky to keep up in the last two weeks. Currency traders would not have had an easy job. In the UK, we have seen a £5.50 drop on Liffey wheat this week. It was assumed that currency would bring the price back, but it didn't. This has led to less new crop procurement, but we are still seeing old crop for June and July coming to the market, which means there will be less carried forward to new crop. There is also a potential for mills not to take their full allocation for June and July as they are in a long position, meaning they have bought too much for the current demand. This is unlikely to change until we are finally out of lockdown. There has been a slight sentiment change after some good rain across Lincolnshire, but the overriding feeling is most of the damage has already been done and the rain has come too late. Little to say on all seed rape this week, the market has been relatively flat and awaits fresh news from yields across Europe and in the UK. So moving on to prices this week for feed wheat, June 157 to 159, August 156 to 158, November 164 to 166, February 167 to 169, May 171 to 173. Milling premiums are currently 24 to 26 pounds. Oil seed rate for June 310 to 312, August 312 to 314, November 322 to 324, February 325 to 327, and May 328 to 330. Barley for June 124 to 126, August 120 to 122. November 129 to 131, February 133 to 135, May 136 to 138. Malting premiums are circa £6. Many thanks, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Showers and sunny spells for the next few days with daytime highs of 20 Celsius and fairly gentle winds for most of the week. Rain on and off through the day today with a light easterly breeze. Speeds not really getting into double figures and highs of 19 or 20 Celsius. Monday will be a degree or two warmer. Again, light, more southerly breezes and a few showers lightly in the afternoon. And on Tuesday, the wind stays around 5 to 8 miles per hour, backing to westerly, highs staying around 20 Celsius and again some showers through the afternoon. For the second half of the week, uh, the pressure rises slightly. It will be mostly dry, but with quite a bit of cloud cover on Wednesday and Thursday and a degree or two cooler. Wind staying in single figures and mostly from the north to northeast. 
Today's farming programme and all previous editions are now available on the website, the app, and from wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for this week. Stay safe, stay positive. I'm Steve Orchard. Have a good farming week.